everyone has shame. To varying degrees, we all have different shame triggers. It's all based on our experiences, our development, and people will manage their shame and develop differently. So shame kind of, even just saying shame will, can trigger shame in someone, the word. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and I'm here to bring you content, conversations, insights, perspectives, and lessons learned that will bring you closer to a deeper appreciation for and relationship with yourself. I'm here to bring you conversations about sexuality, self-awareness, self-development, relationships, intimacy, exploration that will guide you on your journey to deeper self-understanding. Our close relationships account for 70% of our happiness and 90% of our well-being. So better relationships really does mean a better life. I'm so happy to have you here with me. And as always, I'm right here next to you along for the ride on this wild, crazy, beautiful journey. Gestalt Therapist. Arlen provides counseling for individuals, couples, and polycules around topics of sexuality, intimacy, and relationships. Arlen Owens is a psychosexual therapist and educator, registered nurse, and his areas of expertise include communication, shame and identity, kink, fetish, BDSM, and consensual non-monogamy. Hello, so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I'm excited to dive into things today to talk about the role of sex in our relationships, in our identities, in our lives, some of the things that get in the way and keep us from being able to have the sex lives that we desire, some of the things that influence our beliefs and attitudes toward sex, and above all, how much the bottom line is about sex versus sex representing so many other bigger or deeper things and how we should actually be looking at this bigger picture. So I'd love to start out by having you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and why and how you came to be doing what you do today. Yeah. So getting into sex therapy and sexology in general as a science, once I really started to hit my strides, things started to make sense through growing up. My mother is a nurse and a lot of her time nursing was in sexual and reproductive health and mental health. And so I look back and I was exposed to a lot of earlier sex positivity and activism, feminism around my youth. For example, we used to just watch the Sydney, at the time it was called The Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras, on TV. I didn't know what it was or what it meant, but it was delightful and colourful and fun, and we watched it every year. And so I think I picked a lot of that up through osmosis, <laughs> my values, I guess. That sort of felt normal. And throughout school, I was lucky to have really good formative sexual experiences with my early sexual partners and things like that. 
that I look back and go, far out, they were good communicators. And they were like, so I'm really lucky. I'm a lucky person. I'm really aware that's kind of the exception (laughs) to the norm. I moved into people professions. I became a registered nurse and worked in critical care for quite a while. But the health system and the medical model was quite suffocating. And I found that my kind of desire to really connect with people and be person-centered was kind of like a garnish that I, it was an optional thing that I added to my care. So we were trained for it in nursing training. And so I kind of wanted to pursue something that, that was the main thing that I did was the person-centered stuff, the connecting with people. And so I thought, I'm going to change this. I was burnt out in ICU and thought I'm going to go become a therapist. In terms of sex therapy, I've always been a bit of a sex geek. I've always read books, watched docos. I was always just fascinated by diversity and what people got up to and how people lived. Stuff that I'm not into, and but I love that for them. And I'm really curious about that. And finally, <laughs> the more I got exposed to some of it, some of it took my personal interest as well in my own life. But yeah, so I thought sex and psychotherapy. And I didn't know that sex therapy existed until I went into this fabulous sexuality boutique here in Newtown in Sydney called Max Black. And I saw some business cards there for a sex therapist in Sydney. This was maybe five or six years ago. And I went, what? People do that? (laughs) And so I looked it up I looked up training and there's not a lot of training, sort of tertiary training for sex therapy in Sydney. I found that and ended up starting my master's degree in psychosexual therapy. So from that, after I finished, I was working in sexual health as a nurse to get that kind of biomedical side of sexual health up in my experience. And since then, since I started practicing just a little bit with my supervision, I've moved into gestalt therapy because sex therapy really is, it's a kind of, it's an eclectic and integrative style of counseling and psychotherapy, which sex therapists have a really diverse range of skills, depending on what their training and background is. The common thing being that we've all studied sexology on top of our other stuff. And so here I am, I'm full-time, I'm working as a sex therapist and educator. That's basically my journey. I'm lucky I get to do what I love and talk about what I'm passionate about and interested in every day. You're lucky now, and you certainly were lucky when you were younger in terms of the exposure that you had to sex positivity and all of that. I love how you brought up the point of the relationship between sexual attitudes and mental health and how that really is kind of the foundational relationship underlying a lot of issues or things that people struggle with, just basically thinking of this not necessarily as a physical thing, but also it's most notably as a mental thing. And that brings up my question of, as a sex therapist, I think people think, oh yeah, it's all about sex. And in a way, yes. And what would you say you're actually working on with people most of the time? Personhood, embodiment, relationships. Yeah, those are three huge topics, but that's really where it comes down to. Like to give a sort of a therapy example, what you'll find a lot of sex therapists would say this is clients come in and they've got maybe a physical symptom. I always say erectile dysfunction. And for a lot of people that come in, they think there's something wrong with their body and maybe 
a GP has examined them and worked through and said, look, it's, I think it's psychogenic and like, it's about anxiety and things like that. So it's been kind of named, but that's where it stopped there. And they get suggested they go to a therapist. Sometimes shifting that from there's something wrong with my body to my body is showing me something intrapsychic and emotional that might really be outside of awareness as well. That can be a tricky shift for some people to sort of understand that because our, we know like in especially more somatic psychotherapies that the body really shows it is a sign of your internal state. And you can affect your mental state through your body, but your mental state affects your body as well. So it's about in, sort of integrating all of that. And this is sort of comes from the biomedical model, which we've all grown up on. We've all learned about health and illness and disease in a very split way, that mind-body split, even that, that power of your mind and fully believing that what's conscious, what's there is what the truth is. But so much happens, right? If you were conscious of everything that happened in your brain, you'd be exhausted, right? Breath, for example, like if you had to think 24 seven about every breath you took, couldn't do it, you'd get sick of it. You'd just give up and go, no, I'm done, <laughs> right? But so much happens outside of your awareness and unconsciously. And so that's where I like to go with that. With sex, there's a lot happening underneath. When you start to get that, say that client that's coming with erectile dysfunction, you get their story, their social world, their relationships, their experiences and even just how they seem and how they present in the therapy room, it, it, you go, yeah, it makes sense that's happening for you. And then that's where the work starts. That mind-body connection and the biopsychosocial approach to these sorts of things, like you said, we've all learned these systems being separate, but really as much as the condition of our body can affect our mental health, if we have physical health problems, if we're injured, obviously those can affect mental health and that we know very well, but how much can the state of our mental health be a reflection of our body? Or like you said, the body really is just a reflection of our mental state. And when we can know and accept and believe that it opens an entire door to not only different ways of thinking, but feeling and different ways of being in our bodies. Yeah, exactly. So one area which has really started to drive this is is the increase in our understanding of trauma stored in the body. You've probably read, your listeners have read, the body keeps the score. Yeah. There's a lot more out there as well about on the topic, but that's it, is that our body holds things. And through our development, we learn how to be in the world through also our attachment as children. And so we learn how to be in relationship and how to engage and our body has reactions to certain stimuli that have been conditioned. And then our mind makes an association with that and that we make that meaning of what's happening here. To give a therapy examples, something that often happens in therapy is I'll ask someone, what are you feeling in your body right now? And they go, anxiety. And I go, okay, how do you know that? What's telling you you have anxiety? Because that's the interpretation, right? Up here, anxiety. And Sometimes they go, they can go straight there. Sometimes they take a bit of encouragement to learn that we start to look at description. What's actually objectively happening here? So they go, oh, my chest feels tight. My heart's racing. I'm breathing shallow, whatever. And then we start to sort of create a little bit of a split between that interpretation and just that bodily state and have a little curiosity about that. 
What does that mean? Where does that come from? Is this a familiar feeling? And you can, you know, start to challenge that. It becomes a bit more conscious, that reaction to more of a response. Right. And how those things are labels. But again, that's the symptom of like, oh, what are you feeling? Jumping straight to kind of the broader label or symptom rather than kind of what's underneath of, okay, it feels like this. This is where it is describing it. And it's so interesting because different labels can be experienced physiologically in similar ways, right? Anxiety and excitement actually present similarly in certain circumstances. And so really when we choose to give a label to something, it's giving it a lot of power and it might be kind of misassigned power or take away from actually being able to identify what the deeper underlying thing actually is. Another thing that came up for me while I was listening to you talk and going back to earlier, you said how when you were a nurse, working as a nurse, decided to kind of have more bedside manner and the care that goes along with that. And along with the body keeps the score as a, an incredible resource, there's a hidden brain episode of the podcast called the dramatic cure. And it's about the placebo effect. And it talks about how the placebo effect doesn't mean something isn't working. In fact, the placebo effect sometimes works even better than other solutions. And they did studies with people with gastrointestinal issues who went in and got a pill that was nothing, but they were given care and attention and they talked through their issues. And many of them were resolved. They even did a study where People went through, underwent knee surgery. Some of them actually did or didn't receive it. And they found hardly any difference in the result to the point where certain surgeons decided they weren't even going to continue to do the surgery anymore. The point being, the mind is so powerful that in some circumstances, even after they told the patients that they had been given the placebo effect, a pill that was nothing, there were patients that wanted to continue their care. And even going in and knowing they were taking a pill with nothing when they got the care, when they talked through things, it still helped their problem. It still was an effective treatment. And that is just one other example of the power of mind for better or for worse, right? Sometimes we can use it to work for us if we know how, but if we don't, in many cases, it's working against us in ways we don't even realize. Yeah, that care, that improves the effectiveness of what medical interventions they have. If a person feels safe and supported, they feel calm, they feel settled and safe. Gabor Mate talks a lot about that of the, with chronic conditions and he kind of hypothesizes these chronic social conditions and relational conditions that people are in, in this unconscious, hyper-aroused, dysregulated state can affect your immune system, can affect... With yeah. your body and that long-term stuff can lead to chronic issues. That's not to say that there aren't biomedical things happening, but it's a huge part of people's bodies, bodies responding to their life. I could go on a whole rant about chronic pain, which is something that I've personally dealt with for a long time and researched and studied a lot. But the main point here is that yes, there might be certain biological things happening and Many times, the mental labels, the mental power, or the thoughts we're having, or the lack of the right types of thoughts 
is one of the biggest issues. And when we're given the right information, when we are able to think in a healthy way, we are given space to learn and explore and evolve, oftentimes it can be completely transformative. So in the context of sex therapy, it often isn't about sex. Sex is a symptom. There are so many other things. What would you say gets in the way of us having the sex lives that we want to have? Yeah, <laughs> that's a big one. On a surface level, it's being in your head. Your head goes to the past, past ruminations and things like that, future anxieties and fears and worries. Your embodied state doesn't quite feel like it's in a space of safety. Your head's going everywhere and you're not really there. That's something you can practice and develop. On top of that, there's the conditioning of our lives. There's the context we live in, whether that's the individual and relationship context, or whether that's, you know, broader social context, the environment comes into it. There's this steady state of, say, environmental anxiety, which is really coming up a lot for people. And that affects our bodies and that affects our relationships. That affects our sex lives. We can look at concepts, more like social concepts, like intersectionality, intersections and overlapping of layers of oppression. Those are all stresses that are on a person. Things like intergenerational trauma kind of gets handed down and becomes a bit of a cycle that goes on, maybe within a culture or within a family. And that stuff sort of happens below the level of awareness often. Things like attachment, right? We develop this unconscious way of how we relate and how we are in the world. And that plays out. So becoming aware of that, noticing that is a building of awareness of what's happening. You can sort of start to choose to do something different. Other things, social things, shaming, normativity, various isms, sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, and just general sex, sexual shame, social control, normativity, the holding up of a norm, which is quite narrow. It's a box. <laughs> if you fit within that and you're happy and comfortable, fantastic, easy. It's a privilege. If you don't, you're going to be shamed and shame is going to impact you and your body and how you show up in the world. How would you suggest that someone reflect on or evaluate whether or not they experience shame? It might be something that people don't even realize. So how can somebody ask themselves or be able to recognize if shame is showing up in their lives in general and or specifically in the context of sex and sexuality? Yeah, so shame's a huge topic, but... I'll start by saying we all have shame. Everyone has shame. To varying degrees, we all have different shame triggers. It's all based on our experiences, our development. And people will manage their shame and develop differently. So shame kind of, even just saying shame, will can trigger shame in someone, the word. But what it really means, it's a, it, so shame's a pro-social emotion. Right? It shouldn't be killed or alienated for feeling shame. It means you want to fit in. It's on its less toxic ways on that spectrum of emotion of shame. It's how we learn how to be in society. And sometimes that's right. Like I can't just walk up to someone and slap them in the face, right? Like I've learned that would get me in trouble socially. I'm not allowed to do that. So in some cases it's healthy, but what happens is when we get shamed and ostracized and rejected, 
that can become what we can call like a toxic shame where rather than learning, oh, I can't do that, which some people might describe as the like the guilt thing is guilt is about, I did a bad thing. I feel bad about it. And that might be appropriate. But when it, once it becomes toxic, and this is shame, this is a shame that like Brené Brown talks about, is it becomes an image of ourselves as bad, inherently bad, inherently unwelcome or dirty, filthy, deviant, perverted, abnormal. That stuff is what we absorb through a lot of social conditioning in our development. So much of this is about all these things that are added on. We feel like it's what we naturally are, but none of this is what we naturally are. The isms are socially constructed. They're from society, culture, influence. The labels we give ourselves, none of this is how we naturally are. It's just all of this noise and false interpretations, pressure, mislabeling that is added on top and is keeping us from kind of that natural state of flow, of belonging, of connection of acceptance of pleasure and so figuring out how to break down all of that noise blocking us instead of like needing to change who we are we just need to get rid of what's keeping us from who we are and there's a lot that might have this is the vulnerability side right is is being yourself you can be that vulnerable thing but you're you're showing yourself you're taking a little risk and if that's not received well, you're not solid in yourself. You know, solid. I don't know about that, if that's the right word, but if you're not grounded, maybe that's a bit better. That can really impact you, cause you to hide more. And that's their stuff, right? That's someone else's stuff. And so, like, I, I can talk about this in terms of, say, identity and trying to fit in. It was when you're feeling shame, you think that there's no one like you and you're all alone. And you might even project that same shame onto other people, isolate them out of your own insecurity. But then believe that there's no home, there's no place of acceptance anywhere around you. And I believe there is. Sometimes you need to find it, like struggling to fit into a place where consistently your authentic self is not welcome. I mean, you might be able to work on that, develop that, because you don't have to be the same as everyone, but you can start to find where do I feel safe? Where do I feel welcome and looking for that? What would you say some of the typical ways that you see shame showing up in your work are? Some of the examples that tend to repeat themselves, patterns, common ways of people experiencing or expressing shame. Perhaps they're describing it and they don't even realize what they're describing it. And then I'd love to also hear what some of the more subtle ways where people certainly might not recognize at all that they're experiencing shame. So being afraid can be one, hiding yourself, afraid of, afraid of judgment, afraid of exile, afraid of even just showing who you are to someone who objectively, maybe they probably would accept you, but you, there's that fear there still, but also expressing things like, I feel really guilty. I feel really embarrassed. I feel really humiliated. They're all sort of points to bits of shame and they're not bad. Like, don't make anything bad, but they give an insight into to your experiences and what's important to you. Something that often happens, we talk about sort of identity, is we try to fit in and know who we are in the context of where we are. So often people, they want to find a label, for example, for their sexuality or their orientation, right? Am I queer? Am I straight? Am I bi? Am I 
Pan or Ace, who am I? Where am I? And those clients, I don't tell them, you know, the things you've told me have told me that you're asexual. Like, I don't do that. It's what would that label mean for you? Because a label is a tool can help you identify others that are likely to be similar to you. The label talks about a community which has its own culture and history, which you might resonate with and you might be a part of that. There's also stuff around what you do, but it's very objective. And so sort of, I guess, in terms of fitting in, it's what would that label look like for you? Because it can be, can become a cage, like some clarity of going, this is me, can be really nice to feel clear on that, but it can also become like a golden cage. It becomes limited. So it's kind of, for some people, it can be really valuable to find that. And for other people, it can be more valuable to get to a point where they kind of resist definition and they can find peace in just expressing who they are in a really, really diverse context. See a lot of that, say, through the queer community, right? A lot more people are starting to identify as queer as opposed to like gay, lesbian, bi, queer as a concept allows people to be fluid and who they are in any moment and resisting any outside definition. That's kind of the value statement of it. And so say queer is just one particular thing can be many things to many people. And then there's a whole community within that. Yeah. Across gender orientation, things like that. But you know, you don't have to be queer (laughs) to do that. So in terms of the ways that shame shows up or how to recognize it when people don't feel comfortable expressing how they're actually feeling and they try and suppress or repress certain parts of themselves when they withhold parts of themselves out of fear that maybe they won't be fully accepted or trying to be something that they're not or feeling caged by labels or feeling that they have to be labeled or don't deserve to be labeled. Those are some of the ways that Shame shows up. What are some of the more subtle ways or specific examples that you can think of that where people might be able to recognize if shame is influencing them? This is a big one. The script, right? The social scripts. We learn these. They're taught to us in school, in how we're taught. They're taught to us in our social environments, in our relationships. I can talk about marriage, for example. (laughs) I'm a polyamorous man. And I'm married to one of my partners. And so then there's that script of what is marriage mean? Marriage is that, you, well, until recently, a few years ago in Australia, you had to be a cis man and a cis woman entered into for life, monogamous. You get joint bank accounts. There's a whole script that you're meant to follow. And if you're not doing that, people go, what? what? Why are you doing that? And what's interesting, me being poly, and married is that on the side of the poly, non-monogamous sort of people, they go, but marriage is a silly institution and, you know, all that sort of stuff. (laughs) And so then there's questioning on that side as well. If you're not following the script of what the dominant paradigm in that space is. So it's about starting to make what you can do, what feels right for you at any given time. The other thing is within couples. So this is something that a lot of sex therapists put a lot of energy into working with is undoing and loosening up and expanding the sexual script. So like a good way to sort of start in terms of an exploration is how do you know that sex is about to happen? 
And then from there, what might that be? That might be, I don't know, I start feeling up my partner and I snuggle up to them. That might be someone's script. And you go, then what? Do you, do you say, hey, I want to have sex or what? No, we just kind of just start doing it. And then, okay, what do you do? Oh, well, first we use our hands and we touch each other, a bit of fondling, and then we do some oral, and we're going to call that foreplay. And then we have penetrative sex, which is what real sex is. And then if it's a hetero couple, he comes, she maybe doesn't, and then they roll over and go to sleep. And that's like a sexual script, a a very limited one. And so people will be doing that every time. Maybe it's because that's all they know. Maybe it's because they're afraid of actually asking for what they want. There could be a bit of a shame there. Maybe one person wants to get tied up and put on a, I don't know, a pig mask and crawl around on the ground and get flogged. I don't know. None of that involves penetration, but that's still, that can still be erotic. That can still be sex, but naming that, that's out there. That's different, really different for some people. Might be really normal for some people. So that, what do you really like? And what are you curious about? What would you like to do that, that keeps people in that narrow script? They won't even say it to their partner. I can give a personal example of something that happened for me when I started to get kind of interested in kink is many years ago, I was on DeviantArt because I'm into photography and I came across this beautiful photography of Shibari. This would have been like 10 years ago. And I looked at it, I looked at it and, you know, I wasn't particularly kinky, a bit of sensory play and blindfolds and things like that. But I looked at this stuff and it seemed really edgy for me at the time, but it was beautiful. I was really drawn to it. And back then, no, like now Shibari is super popular. Everyone wants to get tied up and tie each other up. It's everywhere because it's popular. But back then, like that's the only place I saw it. I hadn't talked to anyone about it. No one I knew did it in my circle. And I remember at the time I wanted to show it to my partner. We'd been together years and we're really, really emotionally open and vulnerable with each other. But I still felt this fear of saying, hey, I want to do this different thing. And it took me a while. And eventually I was like, I just did it by, hey, check this out. What do you think of this picture? <laughs> it's just really cool. And she was like, oh, that's interesting. I said, I'd really like to do that sometime. And she was like, yeah, but that, that little period of going, oh, can I share this? I remember being really, I think back to that because now like, especially being a sexologist, I'm like, oh, everything's great. Wonderful. But I, I have to sometimes remind myself that the majority of people are back there where I was. And so it, it's worked work to get from there to sort of opening up the possibilities and your relationships have to be safe for that to happen as well. So some of the questions that I'm hearing come up for people to reflect upon, I always love to give people practical, actionable advice or tools. Some of the things that came up is the question of what is your current script? Like, what is your current? And this has been talked about a lot on the podcast, particularly in earlier episodes, but what is why we have a default definition of sex. What does sex actually mean to you currently what's your script where does it come from right probably not yours very often something kind of socially handed to us like a template a default what do you want sex to mean what do you want your script to be and if we were to say 
you have you, you can't use the same script. You have to write a new script from scratch. No choice. This one has to be eliminated. What would you choose? What script would you write? What would it mean? And then using your example, something that has come up as well in previous episodes is, you know, what different tools can be used to incorporate these things. And oftentimes we can use other examples of photo or movies or stories we've heard. And we certainly don't need to skip straight to any extremes of like trying to bring something into our relationship before we even understand how much we want to explore it or not. But these conversations can be really valuable. I mean, even studies show that couples, married couples who talk about the relationships in movies and like analyze the relationships are more likely to stay together than the ones who don't. And it's just because it's a vehicle, it's a metaphor that represents other things and it allows you to explore issues and values and the root causes and express the type of relationship and the values that you want to have and why you disagree or agree or admire what's happening in that kind of example relationship. And similarly, we can find examples from social media or the internet or movies or whatever to use them as a vehicle for exploration. Yeah, and this is what our social learning that happens. The scripts in most media, now it's starting to change as there's more diverse shows, shows like Heartbreak High that was on or Sex Education, for example. Like Right, now there actually are shows that talk about these things versus not that long ago there. Yeah, and they're so valuable. There weren't any shows that weren't following the default script. Yeah, it's the one that I remember, my first girlfriend, I wonder if she'll listen to this. I remember her commenting back when we were teenagers on sex in movies, and it still happens now, is they have a thing, they do a little missionary, and then they just roll over and go to sleep. And so where's the cum gone? What happened? (laughs) Where's the cleanup? There must be a mess under, like, we don't actually see realistic depictions of sex. There's stuff around censorship for that as well. And we don't really see realistic depictions of diverse sex and sexualities either. And less and less so now, but often when it is shown, it's kind of been, gets lampooned and it's cheesy or it's, again, following a really narrow script. And you see that, like, in non-monogamy kinky folk, queer folk, right? The trope of the single quirky gay friend in a sitcom. That's what people grow up seeing. And if that's themselves, that little offside quirky thing on the side, you can believe it was like, where do I fit? Do I see something that's realistic to my experience? And that's why I'm really hopeful of what's changing in media currently with our big sex positive wave happening at the moment. So you said, yeah, you said a few things around which points to kind of meanings and how we do that within a relationship, for example. So like a lot of sexual problems are relational, right? People might have, and relational to the self as well. There might be shame about masturbation, which I don't have to go off on a story about how much shame we've been absorbing about masturbation since before John Harvey Kellogg and his cornflakes. Maybe we can go back to that. It comes to the meanings of sex. So something I often suggest to clients is conversation cards. There's a whole bunch like School of Life, Esther Perel, I see it on your bookshelf there, is to get people to talk and to listen and to understand each other. So listening to understand 
rather than listening to respond. Having a curiosity about someone. So this is a thing that happens a lot in longer term relationships that get kind of very codependent is people start to believe that they know everything about their partner as if their partner is this fixed state, which is just untrue. It's just not true. <laughs> we change and we develop. We're, we're fluid. That's the norm. Change is the norm. And so exactly. things like conversation cards, for example, are a good tool to look at to open up the script. So with talking about sex with your partner, one thing I often recommend is talk about sex when you're not having sex. That's the first bit. When you got your clothes on and everything's calm, you're relaxed, set a nice space, sit down and talk about what sex is for you and not even the doing of sex. Like, what do I want to do? What are my fantasies? You don't even, not even there yet. It's what does sex mean for you? What is it? What do you get out of it? And that, just the answer to that can be really simple or really complex and really different between people. So it's really good to know that. And that's a, that's like, one of the most common questions a sex therapist would ask early on in the work. Something I like to ask, I change it around a little bit. And I say, if tomorrow you woke up and you couldn't have sex ever again for the rest of your life, it's a paradox. It's, that's not possible because sex can be all sorts of things. But let's just say sex is just not going to happen for you ever again. What would you be grieving the loss of? And that brings quite a, quite an emotional answer from people often. What do you get out of it? And it can be different things in different contexts too. Oh, when I'm stressed, it helps me relax. When I'm having insomnia, it actually gets me to sleep. When I'm with someone that I really like, it helps me feel closer to them. And understanding those things about yourself helps you make meaning of what you want, what's important for you. So this is communication stuff. So much of it is through a lack of communication and oftentimes a limited degree of skill in communication. So consent stuff comes into this too. If your consent is a practice, right? And it's not just in sex, it's everywhere. It's in how we relate to other people. And it's a skill that you develop because we don't learn it. It goes well beyond that legal definition of consent. Like that's the bare minimum. Betty Martin in The Wheel of Consent is where I'd recommend looking at this. So communication. Right, communication. I can't remember the quote exactly, but I once heard something along the lines of communication is the bedrock that will make your bed rock. <laughs> and I feel like that just kind of says it all. Really, what is the deepest, most underlying foundational thing here in sex therapy and in sex in general? It's communication and communication can be expression, it can be interpretation, it can be identity, but all of that under this larger umbrella of, of communication, right? it's a way to communicate and our communication is really what shapes our experience of it. I think the questions to ask there, right, the conversation starts, what would you be grieving if you couldn't have sex, whatever you choose to define sex as, those communication exercises being so helpful, we often need a vehicle or a prompt or something through which to explore this. And I love this idea of the goal of any of this, whether it's sex or these conversations, the goal isn't solution, the goal isn't pleasure, the goal is exploration. Exploration will help us learn, will help us change, will help us 
find all of those positive consequences, alignment, deeper understanding of ourselves. But the goal is exploration. To connect and get each other. Yeah. 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 This is meta-communication stuff. It's so, like I said about what do you get out of sex? It's also what, what are you hoping to get out of this communication? Do you want to problem solve? Do you want some advice? Do you want to just connect? Do you just want to be heard and understood? So being clear on what you want to get out of that communication as well. Yeah, I love this idea. This is something that you mentioned in our conversation before this interview, and then also something that has come up a lot lately in my conversations and other interviews, this idea of ask, don't assume. You mentioned how in long-term relationships, we think we know the other person, right? As if even if we did, which is impossible, <laughs> people are not, we're not static beings. And this idea of ask, don't assume whether that's what somebody wants to get out of a conversation or what they want in the bedroom, but also for ourselves. What would you say the impact or the change that comes if we change the way we are asking rather than assuming? Yeah. So that assuming, check it out. If you're thinking something, own that. Like I'm telling myself a story. The only way to know whether that's true or not is to check it out with the other. They might say, no, you just think, you know, oh, they're not having fun. They think I'm ugly. They don't like my body. They're stories. Whereas what's actually happening for the other is they're loving it. It's the best sex they've ever had. Maybe you only know that by checking it out. How are you feeling? Are you enjoying this? Like what could make this better is a really good thing. Being the positive questions rather than yes or no. Yeah. And I love that kind of, if you are going to assume that there's always something more to explore. So instead of, are you enjoying this? Yes or no? What, what could I do to make this better is kind of an explorational rather than an assumption question. Yeah. And it can always get better, right? Is this is, this is when I really started to feel the value of good consent practice was through an experience I had and they were really excitable and a great communicator. And they were like, have you ever done this? And I said, no. And I said, do you want to? And I went, yeah, <laughs> okay, have a go. And then she's like, I want to do this. Can we do this? I go, yeah. And yeah. And yeah. And yes, 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 yes. <laughs> In that context. Sometimes it's a no, but maybe something else. Like that's true. But what I found in that S that like being able to go, yeah, I'm into that. Yeah, I'm into that. I ended up doing a whole lot of things I'd never done before that were fantastic. <laughs> it was wild, right? And we got there through really enthusiastic, playful consent practice. That partner clearly felt safe to ask me that stuff yeah. and I felt safe with them. And so it could flow. We, had, we already knew we had similar values, but you know, we had that what we call relational ground where we had good positive regard for each other and we felt safe and open to communicate that's a step <laughs> to get there once you have that the safety the c- consent the communication then that kind of creates opens the door to the ability to explore once you have this need to have then you can kind of explore what are all these other nice to haves that could enhance this experience What's possible? And rather than even like it could always be better, I would say it could always be different. 
Yeah. Right? Because that way you're not even comparing or like, oh, this versus that. We know this works. We should do this. Of How could this be different? And going back at the goal to explore. It doesn't have to be the best sex of your life every time you have sex. It can just be. And it might not ever be if you don't explore. Yeah. You might do the exact same thing again and it's not as good. And that's okay. What are some of the other questions that people can ask themselves and or their partners? Yeah. So you were talking about the ask, don't assume, which sort of comes back to that. And there's a lot of different ways of doing this, but I've done a bunch of training in nonviolent communication. And so that follows this structure of observation, feeling like emotion, need, and making a request. And what's tied into that and a lot of other communication is self-responsibility and not sort of a projecting an interpretation onto the other person or a judgment or assumption, right? It's, this is me, this happened, observation, objectively, when you, I don't know, what's something bad that might happen during sex? When you said you don't want to use a condom <laughs> for the third time, I felt frustrated and a bit anxious because I really don't want to go condomless. And when I'm asked three times, it makes me anxious and nervous and I not really want to do this. So I haven't said anything about the other person request or even a boundary statement. I'm not going to do condomless and I'd like you to stop asking me that. I don't know. That's just what I came up with. That's also a more loaded thing. There's stuff around that can be in coercion around that and that sort of stuff, but maybe not a great example just for everyday communication that I gave. I say that just to pick, to give you an example of those points. So often what happens is people will express emotions as judgments. So we call them faux feelings is I feel judged. I feel ignored. I feel forgotten about, right? So those things are saying, I think you judged me. I think you forgot me. I think you're ignoring me. And now it's like, okay, now how does that thought make you feel? What's the emotion? I feel sad. I feel lonely. I feel scared, right? That's connecting to what's a bit, that's below that judgment and the meaning we've made of what's happening and maybe an interpretation of what the other person's doing, which might be correct, pulling those apart. So we say OFMR, observation, objective, feeling, emotion in you. What do you need? I need a hug. <laughs> I need a, I don't know. I need you to tell me what's going on. I need some clarity request. Mm. Would you tell me what's going on for you? Yeah. I love that part about not expressing feelings as judgments and getting down to that, that deeper feeling that you're making it more about you rather than again, some sort of assumption or interpretation, whether or not it might be accurate in terms of the questions for people to reflect upon the questions that people should be asking themselves or asking partners in our previous conversation, you had mentioned the fact that you tend to have a lot of people come to you who don't actually know what they like or what makes them feel good. And that you ask this question of 
what feels good for you? And many times people are unable to answer that question. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And then, of course, any other questions that we should be asking ourselves or others? Yeah, this is a hard one sometimes for some people. Something that is not infrequent, I'll say, what are you into? What do you like during sex? And sometimes clients who are sexually experienced, they say, I've never been asked that before. And then they go, oh, when you've been asked a question, you've never been asked. Maybe you're dying to answer the question, (laughs) but also maybe you've never been asked it. So you've never really had an opportunity to think about it. And it might be scary. Like I'm a sex therapist. People (laughs) like they're coming to me to talk about sex. So there's already a boundary down. They already have that belief that I'm going to hear them and it's going to be okay to say things to me that they've never said before, which might be a new experience for them find that in their lives. What do you like? What are you curious about? So what I like to do, because I like to know what's happening in the body, right? The body tells us, gives us signals, has responses to a stimulus or an experience, which we might not be paying attention to. So something I might get towards is they might see a picture like the Shibari picture, right? You look at that picture, you work, focus on it for a bit. What are you feeling in your body as you look at that? And you go, well, I feel quite soft and relaxed. I'm quite aware of, I don't know, I'm making this up. I'm quite aware of my genitals right now (laughs) as I look at this picture. Or I feel a little sweaty. I kind of just want to keep looking at it, right? That's what's happening as you engage with this thing. And then the inquiry is, what does that mean for you as you're engaging with that? What turns you on? So something I often ask is if people watch porn, what sort of porn do you look at? And this is, porn's a complex <laughs> topic. It's a spicy topic. But the, some of the benefits of porn is you might see something that reflects you and your desire, or even just depicts the way that you have sex in your personal life. And that can be comforting to go, oh, look, there, here, there it is on the screen, the thing that I constantly fantasize about. And so that can give some insight into people's sort of real desires. Right. Deeper understanding of what it is you actually like, what you're curious about, or asking somebody else, taking the time to ask a partner who perhaps has never been. Yeah. Going back to conversation, communication, and all through the lens of that curiosity and the idea that there is no normal. One thing that you've mentioned before is there's no wrong way of being. Yeah. Diversity is the norm, right? We're not all the same. Our bodies are not all the same. We're not living in binaries. That's scientifically true. It's not just a, even physical binaries is not true. There's certain majorities and statistical norms, but that's as far as it goes. And a statistical just norm just means that the majority of people are like this. That doesn't mean it's morally normal, which is where they get conflated is a statistical norm becomes, gets moral content. The right way. Yeah. Versus the statistical norm is horrible sex education. And that's certainly not the moral way to go about things. Right. <laughs> we don't want that to be normal. Yeah. Yeah. The, right. Sometimes they should be challenged. The normal, the norm should not be the norm. Change is scary. Yeah. In terms of change, and we've talked about the goal as exploration, but also I'm hearing the goal as awareness. 
you talk about or awareness really is the first step to being able to create change. We can't, maybe we can unknowingly, but it's a lot harder to change if we don't have any awareness. And so can you speak a bit to the role of awareness, the power of awareness, how people can leverage it, and also some takeaways from your work with Gestalt Therapy? Yeah. So I'll just add a little bit about that learning what you like, which is part of this is right. People don't, and it's linked to awareness is that people don't necessarily know what they like because they haven't seen what's possible. So their imagination sort of doesn't know where to go. So this might happen in sex therapy is I could say to some, like say a couple that want to explore more things. I'll say, what are you into? What are you into? And they go, I don't know. What could we do? And we can work on that. But sometimes just being exposed to some things might make you go, oh, actually, that's kind of interesting. So a lot of it is read this book, listen to this podcast, watch this movie, because then you I've see I've even it. seen lists of like, yes, no, maybe of just a list of ideas and Each person puts yes, no, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And some people might, uh, uh, yeah, that's something I do sometimes is the red, yellow, red, yellow, green list Mm -hmm. is people will, some people might, I'll say, write every single sexual act you can think about onto that. And they might write like five or six things and they're like, I can't think of anything else. And then some people will like fill the page, every column, because they've seen it all, they've thought about it all. Maybe they've done it. And so exposure, this goes back to that media stuff, is there's such a limited depiction of what sex could be. Yeah, so sometimes going out and just looking out of curiosity, you might find it. So awareness is you start, through doing that, you start to become aware of, I've seen something and I kind of liked it. It's kind of hot. Think about that. Maybe you want to explore that in real life or maybe it's just a nice fantasy that, gets you turned on. Awareness as a concept is knowing what you do and how you do it. These unconscious patterns that happen as we relate to others and to ourselves. So this is, you know, within psychotherapies, there's a lot of different concepts of change and how we change, like say the CBT, which is really popular. It's about changing our thinking and reframing our thoughts can change the behavior. So it's cognitive which can be valuable for people that are that way inclined. Other ones, like what I largely practice with, because I'm primarily through Gestalt, is a non-directive form of therapy, broadly, is developing an awareness of what you're doing and how you're doing it. When you realize that unconscious pattern that you're playing out, you can start to catch yourself doing it. You go, oh, I always say that. I'm doing that thing I do. And as you're more aware of that and it's really clear to you, you can have a conscious decision of, do I want to maybe try something different here? What could I do differently? How would I like to engage specifically in this moment in a really sort of nourishing or authentic way? So these patterns, these unconscious patterns of relating, we develop them for a good reason. You know, say you grow up with parents who are really perfectionisty and they're always checking your grades and you get in trouble if you don't get a good mark and you lose connection you get in trouble you get rejected 
if you don't succeed, if you don't excel. And what happens? You become a perfectionist because that's how you learn that you get love, for example. And so it was constructive. It was adaptive at the time that these patterns can become unconscious sort of stuck patterns of how we engage with the world. And doing something different to that can feel really scary. And so developing an awareness of like, oh, I'm pushing things. Like I'll give an example. Like I, I love professional development. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And I found that I was getting pleasure from picking up all this professional development, doing, watching all these webinars, doing all these courses. But the effect it had on me was it burnt me out. And so I had to look at that and go, yeah, it feels good. And I kind of, that's my story is that I love doing that. But it, there's kind of this other thing of biting off more than I can chew, for example. And so like now what I'm doing with that is I'm doing less but having quality. And I could do that through developing awareness of a pattern that I notice in myself over time and where that comes from and what that means. So that's how awareness might work. What are some other questions or things people can do to not even just within the context of sex, but to identify these patterns? The example you brought up is essentially reevaluating based on the impact versus the intention, right? Your intention was learn, grow, evolve, level up, have new certificates. Which is wonderful, but... Have more credibility, thought leadership, whatever, right? The impact was burnout. I'm tired. I don't want to do these things or I'm killing myself trying to do them. Imbalance, right? There's no, there's no rest. It's all work. Yeah, the impact wasn't aligned with the intention for which you originally sought out to do those things. And both are true. Yeah, like it's wonderful, but also. <laughs> right. What are other ways that people can bring awareness to themselves, their needs, desires, again, not even just within the context of sex, in order to better understand themselves and opportunities for change? Yeah. Slow down. <laughs> slow everything down. Your brain moves faster than your body does. So slowing down the process and having a little curiosity of what's happening in you right now, you might not, you might not realize until you tune in. So something, a little homework inquiry that I might give people and like a lot of somatic people kind of work with is checking into what's happening, what's evoking you right now physically. Start with sensation and slow down the process of interpreting that sensation, right? So I'm watching this movie or I have to go to work now. Okay. I have to go to work now. Pause. What am I feeling in my body? God, my heart's racing. I'm breathing really shallow. What's that about? And to sort of find what that's about, don't rush because you've definitely got, I hate work, right? Or something, or I didn't sleep last night. Sit and feel it, really feel it. Attend to it, attend to the body slowly and something can start to get clear. What, do I, what am I needing right now? What can I do for myself? Is this uncomfortable and scary? What am I moving towards? What's this about? Meaning can start to pop up a bit clearer, but it's a process of practice. At first you might pause, feel your body go, 
why am I feeling that? And that's okay as well. Just sit with it. When I do this, I feel this. That's the first step. Focusing again on feelings rather than judgment. Yeah. With other people and then in this case with ourselves. This is one of the little bits that's in Betty Martin's consent work is before you respond, pause. What do I, how do I feel about that possibility? So someone says, someone might be great at consent and say, I'd really like to spank you, for example. Instead of going, no, or going, oh, yeah, do it, like really quick, feel that possibility. It's like they're going to spank me. They'd like to spank me. How does that feel in my body? You might feel a little, I don't know, butterflies, a bit of tingly, a bit of sexual arousal. You go, I think that would be really nice. Yeah, let's do that. And, like, I mean, you can have more discussion about how we do that and things like that, but put a space between the stimulus and the response. Are there any other, before we wrap up, are there any other tools or homework assignments or questions or exercises that you would recommend to our listeners to help them explore, to help them bring more awareness into their lives, their relationships, to have these conversations, to improve communication? So I've talked about nonviolent communication and Betty Martin. Look up those. There's books. Betty Martin has a book. She has a website and lots of videos and some exercises in that. Three-minute game, pleasure in your hands, their pleasure, mindfulness, and communication exercises that are free on her website. She's amazing. Her book has everything inside it. Nonviolent communication, you can look up little videos on YouTube about showing examples of how you might do that. It's a good basic skill of communication. Look that stuff up. But also things like lifestyle stuff, right? Move, exercise, move your body. Do yoga, lift weights, swim. And as you do that, notice how it feels in your body before, during, and after. It's about attending to what's in you. In terms of sex and sexuality, just explore. Like Google some things, watch some movies, watch a bit of porn maybe, expose yourself to stuff. Like I, I mentioned about watching Mardi Gras as a kid, right? And so that felt like a normal thing to me that would happen because I, it was there. It's not weird or different to me. It's just there. So start to expose yourself to stuff. Well, just with curiosity, you're not trying to make yourself like something or anything like that. Just see what's out there. Yeah. Kind of curiosity leads to awareness or exploration, which leads to awareness, which is the agent for change. Something else that I've noticed since becoming a sex therapist is I've noticed I'm good at parties because everyone wants to talk about sex, but there's that belief, right, that, oh, we don't talk about sex. I don't talk about sex. (laughs) I have found, maybe it's the permission of my profession when I go to a party is I'll mention it and just everyone in the group will just start sharing all sorts of stuff just freely. I'm the only therapist there, but people want to talk about this stuff. So talk to your trusted friends, ask them stuff. I had a friend who I took to a sex shop. She was in her mid thirties and she'd never been into a sex shop, never owned a sex toy, had a lot of, I guess, 
maybe shame, <laughs> a bit of embarrassment about that, that, oh, people, we don't need sex toys, vibrator. Oh, I took her there and she saw some things and she decided to explore a little. She bought a little bullet vibe and she hid it because she didn't want her housemate to see him. And she got it home and a week later, she kind of came clean to her friend on the weekend and said, oh, I bought a vibrator. And her friend was like, yeah, awesome. What, you've never owned one? You've only just discovered vibrators? What? <laughs> and then it opened up the whole conversation. Whereas before that, she was like, oh, my friend will judge me and it's weird. And But then when she said, hey, it was like, her friend was like, of course. Right. That was shame keeping her from these conversations and connection as a result of these conversations that, like you said, almost everyone is just waiting to happen. The only reason they're not happening is generally because nobody's starting them, but people are itching to talk about this. And I've had that same experience talking about the podcast. I've had conversations with men, women, young, old people who are like Republicans in their 70s who still want to talk about sex and have plenty of thoughts about relationships and connection and intimacy and we're all humans so inevitably this is something that we all have in common and the more we put it out there the more people respond the more we talk about the more awareness and therefore the more change we will create and see as a result we all want to talk about it <laughs> one of the thing the sex toy thing made me think about it Bringing up sex, it can be useful to have some sort of icebreaker about it. So saying I bought a vibrator might be, there's self-disclosure in that of it can be scary. But things like media, again, can be really helpful. It's like, oh, I came across this Instagram account and I watched this reel where they said this. What do you think of that? Like, you're not saying you did a thing or you want a thing, but you watched something that made you think, and so you're talking about, or, hey, I listened to this podcast that a friend sent me. I listened to this podcast today. Use this podcast. <laughs> Use this as the icebreaker. As the conversation started. Yes. Amazing. Great. Well, thanks for being on the podcast today to talk with me about it. And I hope that everybody listening takes some of these questions and uses them as a tool to continue the conversation, improve communication or inspire awareness and change as a result. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime. If you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism, we'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.